As Tom has just said, the reading this morning is from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14, and it's on page 942 of your Bibles. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, must also, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Great. Thanks, Colin. We'll do keep that passage open. If you could have your Bible or your Bible app open, that'd be real help to me as we look at this passage together. Uh, can I add my welcome? It's great to see you all. Uh, visitors, particularly welcome. Great to see you. Uh, those of you who are first here for the first time, um, and uh, we were away last weekend. It was a, a joyful uh, weekend, um, catching up with old friends, but we missed you. Uh, so it's, be great. it's great to be back. So let's just pray, shall we, as we come to God's word together, that he would be our teacher. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for what you have done for all who trust in you. We're sorry that we so quickly and easily misunderstand and turn away from the wonder of who we are in Jesus. Holy Spirit, please help me in my sinfulness and weakness. Please help us all in our sinfulness and weakness that we might see what it means to be in Christ with fresh understanding, new light, even, Lord, if you so choose, light in our hearts for the first time. Please speak to us, living Lord. Amen. Well, how do you, <clears throat> how do I, how do we think about ourselves, especially when we fail? 
How do we feel when we break our own standards, let alone God's standards? How do we think about our bodies? Do we see our bodies as our possession? To do with as we see fit. Are we our bodies? Do our bodies define us? Or are we our minds? Is the real us in our brains or somewhere else? Which is more important? Are we comfortable with our bodies? Do we want to change our bodies? Do we want to change our minds? These are all questions of our culture, are they not, that uh, impact us, whether we're Christians here this morning or not. For many, when we fail, there are not just feelings of guilt, there are feelings of self-loathing, self-destruction. Not only is our culture suffering from an epidemic of mental health issues, it is a culture in which we are battling the control of social media invading, I'm not saying that social media is bad, but some of the stuff on it is bad, a culture where we're encouraged to self-harm or even towards suicide. There's so many tragic examples, aren't there, of young people who have been influenced in that way. And so our culture presents a toxic mix of narcissistic self-love and at the same time, self-harm and destruction to the point of suicide. Our culture is obsessed with the ideal body, changing it through plastic surgery or Botox or or fillers or whatever it might be. Uh, We are told that we are to be free to be ourselves, but clearly we don't really like ourselves. Why? We're continuing a series um, in Romans chapters 5 to 8, looking at the whole issue of Christian identity. And as we do so, we need to be uh, at least aware of the, the way in which our culture is screaming to us about what really matters in our identity. And we need to understand a little bit of why our culture is the way it is. Some of you, if you're doing philosophy, will will know some of the philosophical uh, roots of this, and I'm not going to go into it in great detail, but following Nietzsche, our culture now believes that because God is dead, it is ourselves that bring meaning to ourselves. There's no inherent meaning to our human bodies and minds. We have to make it up because we're on our own. We are the ubermensch, the overlord. We we are the ones who decide who we are. To quote a uh, uh, a website, the ubermensch or the superman is Nietzsche's vision of what we each could be were we not so bogged down by outdated religion and morality. Get rid of Christianity in every possible way, Nietzsche would say, because only then... Can you enter into the identity of who you truly are? Of course, the Nazi regime with Hitler embraced this and illustrates the destruction that can follow. But no matter, our culture still thinks this is a good idea. 
And then when it comes to our bodies, Freud, now celebrated in the recent film, I don't know if you've seen it being advertised on Netflix or wherever, the answer to our bodily urges is not to repress them. No. If you want to be free, express them. That's what Freud says. In fact, Freud says this is the, the mistake that civilizations have made for millennia. Now we want to have no kind of civilization defined by its taboos in the sexual arena. Now we want to get rid of oppression. That's toxic. It leads to mental illness if you repress your deepest sexual urges. So express them whether in a RuPaul kind of way or an Andrew Tate kind of way. Whatever serves satisfaction or survival or sex, do it. Be the real you. Is this sort of ringing any bells? I, I'm not so good at popular culture, so uh, some of you will be able to tell me where this sort of lands in popular culture, in music, in films. But as I was saying, we're continuing a series today in Romans 5 to 8 because if we're Christians here this morning, we have an identity that is so much more secure, so much more rich, and is true freedom, and yet our cultural makers find it difficult to grasp, to understand our identity. You see, both Nietzsche and Freud propose that the solution to guilt... The solution to self-loathing, to condemnation, is to get rid of all morality. Because it's the law that you, or it's the standard that Christianity or religions or you create that makes you feel guilty and self-condemning. We live in an antinomian, against the law kind of culture. Celebrate sex and violence we see it in all our media outlets, really, don't we? In fact, I was, I was looking at something on Netflix the other day, thinking, I'm interested in sort of civilizations and history and that kind of thing. And uh, there was something on Netflix which, which was basically saying, uh, come, and, come and learn about the history of the samurai and satisfy your bloodlust at the same time. And that, that's going to make it more attractive, isn't it, this documentary on the samurai? Now, Paul is responding to the objection to what we've been looking at so far, the grace of God, which means that we're acceptable to God through what Jesus has done. He's responding to the logical objection, which is antinomian, which is against having standards that you have to keep. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then, in other words, in conclusion to chapter 5? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Or verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. In other words, a correct 
implication, it's, uh, it's a misunderstanding of the Christian faith, but a, a correct implication or misunderstanding would be, well, if we're saved by grace, if the only way that we're going to be acceptable to God is not by our good works, but only by trusting in what Jesus has done, by grace alone, well, why then should we not continue in sin? What's the motivation for fighting sin, for resisting sin, for not giving in to our bodily passions? What's the motivation if, if we give in, then God's grace is just seen to abound more and more, which is what he's been saying in verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So why not just keep sinning? Two points this morning. Christian, you have died to sin and are alive to God in Christ. So compute that. You've died to sin and you're alive to God in Christ. So compute that. And then secondly, so Christian, present your body to be ruled by God and his grace, not sin. Now, if we're not Christians here this morning, it's so good that you're here with us. Uh, and I'd love you to sort of come with us as we look at the freedom and the richness of the Christian life. Because Jesus said, if the Son, that's who he is, who he claimed to be, the Son of God, sets you free, you will be free indeed. You'll be able to have the highest of standards and yet self-acceptance at the same time when you fail. That is freedom, not getting rid of the standards, but then suffering from self-loathing. No, if you know that God accepts you, you know that you're accepted. And if you know that one day you will be perfect like Jesus, you, you're free to keep living towards those perfect standards. So come with me and see the freedom that the Apostle Paul expounds of Jesus' teaching. First point, Christians have died to sin and are alive to God in Christ, so compute that. Uh, these two sections of chapter 6, the first section is more to do with our understanding of the doctrine of union with Christ. We are one with Christ, because that is the basis of how we live the Christian life. And then the second half is more some of the practical outworking. So it's going to be more illustrations of understanding this morning than practical applications, but we will get to that. Just see with me that Paul is saying that we have died with Christ. Verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, you get the idea. Paul is banging a drum. He's saying, Christian, you are dead to sin. You have died with Christ. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, We've got to be careful to understand this. It's, it's easy to misunderstand what Paul is saying here, and Christians over the centuries have misunderstood it. Does he mean, as some have taught in the past, that Christians are no longer tempted by sin? 
that just as a corpse has no response to sin, so Christians have no longer any response to sin. Is that what Paul is teaching? No. Not only do the 39 articles make this very, very clear, which we subscribe to as a church, but just uh, keep your finger there and just flip over the page. Oh, no, it's, I think it's on the same page on these Bibles. Um, chapter 7, verse 19. Paul can say of himself, So now it is no longer I who do it, verse 17, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry, out, carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Does Paul continue to sin? Yes. Even the great apostle Paul continued to sin. So perfectionism is not taught in the Bible. Once we become a Christian, we continue to sin. So how can Paul be saying that we have died to sin? Well, just before we go there, I just want us to um, get clear that what Paul is teaching in chapters 5 um, to 8 is that because we are justified as Christians, we have union with Jesus Christ. We're united to him. In other words, one leads to the other. Now, um, we, we've looked at justification, haven't we? We have it at the beginning of uh, chapter 5, verse 1, if you can think back to the new year. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... What does that mean? If we're just investigating the Christian faith, what does it mean to be justified by faith? Well, let's just flip back to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. See, Paul has said that we are all sinful. That's what it means to be human. Verse 25, sorry, chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned. He's argued thus far in the book of Romans that none of us are going to go to heaven by being good people. I hope we've all got that clear. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It means we won't get to glory. We won't get to heavenly glory, the new creation, on our own. But we are justified by his grace as a gift. People are made right with God simply by trusting in what Jesus has done as a gift. Because when he died on the cross, he died as our substitute you see, this grace, this generosity of God, this gift, uh, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We just trust that Jesus did something on the cross to get rid of our condemnation. Substitution. The image is uh, picked up from the Old Testament so when there was a sacrifice, the sacrificial animal would have been here, you know, well not, not right here in a pub, but you, you get the idea, it's here in the, the temple, and it would have been, I don't know, a sheep or a goat or a bull or a, the scapegoat, but the general idea is the worshipper or the nation would have placed their hands onto the animal, God's justice was coming towards the nation or the people because of their sin, but instead the sin could be placed into the animal and then the animal's throat was slit. Blood was shed. It was a picture saying, the wrath of God, the judgment of God has been averted on me or on the whole people of Israel by a propitiation. And so when Paul says, well, that was just pointing forward to Jesus. He's the true propitiation. 
God's judgment is coming to you. We won't be in heaven if we're hoping in doing good stuff. The only way we'll be in heaven is trusting in the propitiation, trusting in Jesus, receiving that as a gift. And now I say that because that needs to be made clear again and again and again, because we, we slip away from that. Churches aren't always very good at proclaiming it clearly. Have you received that gift this morning? If you haven't received it, you need to. That is the only way we're made right with God, by trusting in Jesus' substitution, propitiation for us. But that's not what Paul is talking about in chapter 6. It's the basis of what he's talking about in chapter 6, because justification leads to our union, our faith union with Jesus Christ, because he's talking about the death of Jesus as our representative. It's different. Uh, I'm sure we can all remember the story of David and Goliath. If we haven't, it goes something like this. Uh, big Philistine army uh, champion, Goliath, uh, challenging the whole Israelite army, saying, look, come on, come out and fight Goliath. If one of you can come and fight Goliath, then we'll be your slaves. You win. And so out comes David. David kills Goliath, and the Israelites win. He, David, is the representative of the Israelites. He wins, they all win. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ is a Christian's representative. When he dies, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When he was crucified, we were crucified. When he was raised, we were raised. It's wonderful. That's his argument. Look with me at verse 2. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, we need to be careful here that the word baptism sends us off on all kinds of thoughts. Paul is not talking about water baptism primarily, although if we have become a Christian and we've not been baptized, you need to get baptized. That is a command of the Bible, so see me afterwards. What he's talking about here is the baptism that joins us to Jesus Christ. And that's not water baptism. It doesn't matter whether we be baptized as infants or baptized as adults. Baptism does not do that. It's a sign of what does do that. What, what does do that? Trusting in Jesus Christ. And then the Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ. See, Paul has already argued that we're joined to Jesus Christ by faith in him. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, the whole of chapter 3 and 4. It's not water that joins us to Jesus. It's our trust that is given us by the Holy Spirit. And so he continues, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, Paul clearly has something in mind, I think he has that moment when we became Christians in mind, which is why he uses baptism imagery. That's what John Stott says. But I'm following Martin Lloyd-Jones, those of you who know those two greats of Christian preaching, in suggesting that this is more to do with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
that when we trusted in God and his promise to forgive us through what Jesus has done on the cross, we were baptized into Christ by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians puts it like this, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. In chapter 5, verse 5, Paul has said that because of our justification, what has happened? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When we trusted in Christ, the Holy Spirit was poured into our hearts. We were united to Jesus Christ. And you might say, John, isn't, isn't this just sort of splitting hairs? Whether it's, you know, water baptism or the, the moment we became Christians and decided to trust Christ for ourselves or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is, is, well, I think it's important, as Lloyd-Jones would say it's important, because if it's the Holy Spirit who has united us to Jesus Christ, that can never be undone. If we have been united to Jesus Christ by God the Holy Spirit, which is what Paul is going to argue in chapter 8, there's, there's nothing that can stand against us. We will be in heavenly glory. Because when we trusted in Christ, the Spirit united us to Christ, baptized us into Christ, and as our representative, we died. We were buried. We were crucified which is language of the sinful nature being done away with, and we've been raised to a new life. It's almost like we have a parallel new existence. We were born in Adam, now we have a new nature in Christ. Why is this important? Well, it's because for Paul, this is how we live the Christian life. Everything flows from this. Our security, our confidence, our fight with sin depends on union with Christ. Christ having died and been buried and crucified and raised as our representative, our hero. He's the hero. And if we've joined in, been joined in a death like his, do you know what? We will be joined in a resurrection like his. These bodies, one day will be as glorious as his. That gives us you a bit of hope when you're fighting this body, when you're wrestling with what this body throws up in your life. That's what we need, isn't it? Let's just check that what I'm saying is true. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, we know that our old self was what? Crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin in the past. Done deal. So when I sin, what I should be telling myself is, it's the old you. It's the old you. It's been done away with. You've been set free. You don't want to live like that anymore. What are you doing, Parker? You idiot. But you see, what do we say? Well, how can this be true? How can a Christian have been united in a death like Jesus and in a burial like Jesus and a crucifixion like Jesus and a resurrection like Jesus and is as free from sin and death and has an old self when, do you know what? It doesn't feel that dead to me. Sin doesn't seem 
that week in my life, maybe that's just me. Is that just me? You see, we don't feel it. That doesn't mean it's not true. Let's not believe the lie of our age, which is that feelings are the truth. Gets us into all kinds of problems. All kinds of problems. But here's a few illustrations. I've got two or three illustrations to try and help. Because this is difficult for us, isn't it? This is not, na this is not natural. This is supernatural understanding. And if we don't understand this, you need to call out to the Spirit, as we all do, for him to help us. If we break the law and we receive a sentence and are taken to prison, if we try and escape before we've served our sentence, rightly the police might catch up with us and take us back to prison. That's what the law does. We've broken the law, we must serve our sentence. We can't be free until our sentence has been served. If Jesus Christ has paid the full sentence for our sin and, uh, and rebellion against God, then when the policeman of the law comes to us and says, you need to go back to prison, we can say, no, my sentence has been paid for. I am free to go. I can live a free life because the sentence has already been paid on all my sin, past, present, future. I don't have to punish myself because Jesus has been punished for me. I don't have to loathe myself because God accepts me. He loves me. That is my new life. I've died to sin. I've now got a new... The sentence... In fact, policeman, you've got, you've got it all wrong. I don't belong in the prison because my sentence has been fully paid. I've been justified. Don't know if that helps. That was Christopher Ashe's uh, illustration. Here's Lloyd Jones's illustration, which I think is also helpful. And forgive me, Americans, if I've got this slightly wrong. Correct me on my history afterwards. Following the American Civil War, there was the Emancipation Proclamation, I think. Slaves could go free. But for many wives, they were free legally and had every right to live as free men and women. It's taken a few more years for that to work out. Even in their lifetime, they were legally free, but their experience took time. We, if we're Christians here this morning, are legally free. God has declared us justified, innocent, free to go, no sentence to be paid. We are heading to glory. But to feel free, well, that's going to take a bit more time. Why? Because we're waiting for the freedom of the children of God, which is the resurrection of our bodies. Spiritually, we've been set free. Our bodies still create quite a, little, quite a bit of problems. Here's another illustration. This is my illustration, so it's not going to be as good. In a war zone, when someone is rescued from the war zone, she's imagine, I don't know, the, the trenches of Ukraine or the, 
you know, the, the, the terrible scenes in Afghanistan, you know, the war zone. And, and in comes a helicopter, a Chinook, uh, and rescues somebody, scoops them up and takes them back to territory which is peaceful and secure and safe where they're out of threat. That is true spatially. But it doesn't mean that a person's mind has not been affected. PTSD, hypervigilance. They're safe, but their mind will take some time to readjust to the new territory. If we're Christians here this morning, we have been delivered from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of the Son whom God loves. We were dead in sin, objects of God's wrath. We're now objects of his mercy that he delights in. But it may take some time for our minds to adjust. And that's what Paul says. Look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We will be in heaven. We will be in glory. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life he lives, he now lives to God. Same for us now. We are dead to sin. I, I don't think like this. I have to confess. Uh, the church, the Western church, is really bad thinking like this. It's great that we've got some songs that are actually now articulating it. But generally, our model of how to live the Christian life is not, I'm dead to sin. I'm now alive to God. It's, oh, I just need to keep being forgiven again and again and again. And I'm not really sure if I'm ever going to make it because I might blow it. Or is that just me? No, there has been a complete change to our identity. We have an identity that can not be changed. That means we are loved by God. That sin is gone. Do we think like that? What Paul is saying, this is the first bit of application to this teaching, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is, this is his, uh, he's been trying to help Christians and us understand this. He's sort of drumbeat, hitting the nail on the head. Can you get this into your thick skulls? Just come on. Why are you so... We're all dull, aren't we, spiritually? We need to hear this again and again and again. I need to hear it again. We need to talk to each other. Do you know that you're dead to sin? Do you know that when you became a Christian, sin died? It, it no longer has mastery over you. If you're a Christian, that's true. doesn't matter how you feel. Uh, the word translated consider, verse 11, is the word from which we get logic or reason or accounting. And so apart from the accountants amongst us, it's probably quite difficult to get really excited about it. It's a mathematical kind of word. Tot it all up, or we might say, Compute, it also means to understand. So we've got to compute, we've got to think and consider and view ourselves in the right way. 
do you, if you're a Christian here this morning, it, do I think of yourself as dead to sin? Is that what we believe? Do we think of ourselves? Do we rehearse in our minds, I'm alive to God. I have a life that will never be destroyed. Not even death or hell can touch it because I am in Christ. See, what Paul is saying is your sin is not really who you are anymore. That's your old self. You now have a new self. We still sin, but it's not who we are. Now that's most of what we're going to look at this morning, because in the second section we're going to look at more application. But I just want to go to verses uh, 12 to 14, as, uh, and the second point is way, way, way shorter than the first point, just to encourage you. <laughs> So, Christian, present your body to be ruled by God and his grace, not sin. Present your body to be ruled by God and his grace, not sin. Because we've died to sin and we're now alive to God. So, verse 12, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, that's the bits of your body, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members, that's the parts of your body, as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you. That's the future you're heading to. Since you're not under law, there's no police officer coming to come take you back to prison. Jesus has fully kept the law and he's taken the punishment. But you, 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 you're not under law anymore. You're under grace. It's a spiritual reality for the Christian that by the Spirit we already have a life that is eternal. A life that extends beyond death into the new creation. A life that God will sustain because we have died to our old self. We've died to sin and death in Christ. And so what are we to do? We're to literally present ourselves to the one who rules us already by his grace and love and mercy and kindness He's already in us, and we are already in him. Uh, I'm going to do something now that I don't usually do. I'm just going to ask us all to close our eyes and to be willing to present every part of our body to the God who has saved us. I'm going to use the words of a hymn. But this is what Paul is saying, is if we're alive to God, we can say, Lord, have all of me. I present every part of me to you. Use me for righteousness. Because that's who we truly are. Let's just close our eyes and I'm just going to read the words of a hymn and then say amen. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips 
and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take myself and I will be ever, only, all.